Lord, thank you for this encouragement. We can call it evidence, for it is. But the proof is really in that inner witness, Lord. It's the function of the gift of prophecy when, when your presence amongst your people reveals the secrets of our heart, speaks to only us through the Word. That inner witness that the beloved John wrote about, I pray indeed, Lord, help us to recognize it, for the inner witness is you. Now, Lord, guide us on this journey tonight, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, tonight we're going to look at the longest time prophecy in the Bible. I'm going to break this into two parts, so I am changing the way we're approaching the schedule, but there's a lot here. I don't want to try to cram it all into one night. On the first night of our series, we went pretty quick, and I heard from different ones of you it was way too quick. And tonight, I'd like for you to be able to digest your meal. So we're going to serve it up in courses. Tonight is course number one. I want to remind you that thematically you can understand what the the major movements of God are without um, too much complexity. And when this scripture is referenced in the Psalms, it is easily overlooked, but from the very beginning, sacrifice and mediation and a judgment that is designed to vindicate us has always been in the heart and plan of God. Sin brought a need. It brought a need for deliverance. Satan knew, and Adam and Eve knew, that as soon as a rebel government took over, people were going to die. Jesus knew this. So rather than it be us, He collected through His creative power the ability to redeem us. He who brought us into this world, brought us into existence, could collectively lift us out of this chosen slavery. That storyline of deliverance and a restored relationship and ultimately a reinstatement, a, a place back in Eden, was a gift of Jesus, promised in the garden, formalized on the plains around Mount Sinai, and then fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. But the fulfillment is yet and ongoing. So, Jesus died outside of the city of Jerusalem, just like the lambs slain to make the first covering for Adam and Eve were slain outside the gates of Eden. And once the death part was done, and Jesus was the lamb that took away of the sins of the world, he transitioned his ministry into heaven. There's going to be no dying in heaven. That part happened outside of the heavenly precincts. It happened even outside of the city of Jerusalem, the city of peace. But what we see happening can be simply explained through the broad strokes of the sanctuary. Now, I want to read you something. I hope you get just a little overwhelmed with zeros. Over 300, I'm reading out of a book here entitled All the Messianic Prophecies of the Bible. Over 300 predictions about the Messiah are to be found in the Old Testament. According to the law of compound probability, the chance of their coming true is represented by a fraction whose numerator is 1 and whose denominator 84 followed by nearly 100 ciphers. One might almost as well expect, I like this metaphor, I love this image, one might almost expect by accident to dip up any one particular drop of the ocean as to expect so many prophetic rays to, 
prophetic rays to cover by chance upon one man in one place at one time. God has put especially upon these prophecies as to his son the stamp of absolute verity or truthfulness and indisputable sincerity, certainty, so that we may know whom we have believed. Mistakes in so solemn a matter are fatal, and God meant that none should be possible. 300 prophecies about Jesus. Tonight I'm going to show you what might be one of the most amazing, certainly by way of time. But I want you to understand, nothing about our salvation is happening by chance. God has put the universe on pause. He's maintaining it. There's been an accusation against His name. He's not expanding the, the spheres of life. But He has stopped so that until His government is secure by the illustration example of His own love and sacrifice, until every question is answered, in the meantime, the focus is on you. The focus is on those who have not been reached yet. That's why it makes it so important that as a church, we gather, we pray, we care, we announce, we seek, we serve, we reach. We know that Jesus after dying, ascended into heaven to be our high priest. We shouldn't be surprised that Paul will be writing in the book of Hebrews. I do believe Paul wrote the book. Some do not. But Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands. We're talking sanctuary language. Which are copies of the true. So the one that Moses made, and the one that Solomon made, and the one that was built in the era of Ezra and Zerubbabel, which Herod remodeled and expanded, three different temples, all of those were based on a pattern. It was a heavenly pattern. So Jesus, after fulfilling His prophetic role as the Lamb of God, ascends to heaven to fulfill His role as our high priest. It is a heavenly sanctuary. We saw that there was the sacrifice, the mediation, and the judging, which was designed to vindicate us. It was to be in our favor. There is deliverance through the Lamb, power through the relationship, and restoration through the pronouncement of our judgment, our vindication. And what we can see is that this is revealed at the cross. The power of the new relationship that is opened up by Jesus is revealed by the outpouring of the Spirit on Pentecost. And the three angels' messages are going forward so that before the work in the most holy place ends, Everybody can know, and everybody ought to know. God has made provision. So, we see our record cleansed, we see our relationship restored, and we see a reinstatement. E Eden will be ours again. Eden will be a part of the new Jerusalem and the world remade. This is what John writes, and when he, and when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. can sound just a little bit ominous, but tonight I want you to see in this scripture, the threefold ministry of Jesus. He comes and he convicts the world of sin because they don't believe. They have no hope. They have nowhere to go. It's sinful to recognize that you're full of problems and the invitation of God to both forgive and cleanse is resisted. John tells us that Jesus came into the world. They loved darkness more than light and his own did not receive him. This is sin. We are naturally sinful. We saw in Jesus' nighttime rendezvous with Nicodemus, God didn't need to come into the world to see that we were sinful. He did not come to condemn us. 
Every heavenly intelligence could see that from afar. Jesus came down to save us. So the Holy Spirit comes to convict of sin. We need to understand we're diseased spiritually. And those diseases spill over. But He also came to do something else. He came to convict the world of righteousness. Why? Because I go where? To my Father. I want you to see the movement of Jesus. It's from the cross up into the heavenly sanctuary where He's our high priest. He's going there. He's shown us how to live and He's giving us the power how to live. But He didn't leave us as orphans. He sent the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is there. Whoever lives to make intercession for us and of judgment. Boy, this could sound pretty bad if you point it all at you. But it's judgment because the prince of this world, that's a reference to Satan. He's judged. In other words, in this great controversy, Christ comes off the victor and the vindicating advocate and judge for all those that have rested their estate with Him. So yes, this ongoing ministry, you'll find it in reference to different parts of the Scriptures. The high priest there on the Day of Atonement. It was a work to make a final end of sin and of Satan. We saw in the festivals, the very first one being Passover on Nisan 14. This Passover lamb was slain when the destroying angel came through Egypt. There was deliverance if you were inside a house that had the blood on the doorpost. Why am I showing you this again? Because I want you to see that the feasts themselves show the progression of Christ's ministry and our deliverance. The unleavened bread was a function of rapid deliverance. They were taken out of Egypt and their bread couldn't rise. Jesus connected the leaven or the yeast with sin. And this was to be a time when this feast was celebrated of examining our lives and making sure that it wasn't creeping in in ways we didn't know. This followed immediately on the heels of Passover. And during that Passover weekend, when Jesus came and was the Lamb who became slain, during that weekend, Christ brought first fruits to life. There were others who were resurrected on that weekend, and Jesus took them back to heaven. So we see now we're progressing through the spring feasts, which are about grains. They're about Jesus, the bread of life, the provision for the soul, the spiritual strength for who we are. And then Jesus telling the disciples to wait in Jerusalem as he's inaugurated in heaven, as that relationship is opened up by the merits of his blood, his sacrifice sends, well, the Spirit of God comes down and power is on the, the disciples in ways you never saw before. They were converted at the cross. Three and a half years of walking with Jesus and they were not converted. But when they beheld Jesus and a new frame of understanding broke upon them and they realized that Jesus was the suffering servant of Isaiah and that Jesus had to pay the price of our sins and they saw the depth of self-centeredness in their lives arguing over who would be the greatest on the very night Jesus' heart was weighed down with what was in front of him they were changed people these are the spring feast and that journey to heaven is when and how Pentecost happens God pours out His Spirit. Jesus has now opened the door for a direct line to God. And that's what Paul said. Let us come boldly before the throne of grace. You don't have to go through a man. The only man you go through is the God-man, Jesus. He opened the door up. The deepest, darkest secrets of your life, as they become known to you, those chapters you don't want anybody else to know about, Jesus knows about them, but nobody else needs to know. 
They can be covered by His blood. This is a progression of Christ's ministry in the spring festivals. The first segment relating to sacrifice. The second as a function of mediation, an open door. Now let's go to those fall feasts again. The Feast of Trumpets, which started yesterday. Appreciated Grant Lubert getting that uh, ram's horn to make a few noises for us. Yesterday was the beginning of the Feast of Trumpets for those that are celebrating it. Ten-day invitation to prepare for the Day of Atonement. Day of Atonement will come nine days from now. Both of these feasts will be followed by a great celebration because when the Day of Atonement was over and the sin problem had been shown to be legitimately not God's but Satan's, when God's people have been vindicated, and when we are received by Jesus, our journey home will be in anticipation of a great celebration. So, Feast of Trumpets, it's the time to get attention. Judgment is on the way. It is intended to be vindication, but it's only vindication if you have confessed, if you have put your knowledge of your sinfulness and your sins into the hands of a sin-forgiving, sin-pardoning, and sin-cleansing God. When that day was over, five days later, the Hebrews, all men that were of... uh, age of accountability, came to Jerusalem. This was a required feast, and they celebrated. Friends, the marriage supper of the Lamb is what Jesus is waiting for. He's looking forward to closing this chapter. Only one thing really stands between Him closing it and our celebration, and that's that the world might know. This was the one of the admonitions and signs Jesus told us about, and that is that this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to every kingdom, tribe, nation, and people. And then the end will come. So here we have the dynamic of judgment. When judgment is finished and God's people have been vindicated, then it'll be time to celebrate. And what a great day it will be. God always sends a message to prepare His people for major worldwide events which will affect their spiritual destiny. And this is what the Bible says. God does nothing without announcing it through His prophets. Now, if all you knew was what I've shared with you over these last several nights about God's plan of salvation in the sanctuary. And then what I've shown with you about a progression of ministry through the feast. Wouldn't you expect that before Jesus came the first time, and before Jesus comes back the last time, God will put down some prophetic markers so the world could know time is running out. Deliverance is almost here. It's one thing to know thematically and in general what the Bible says. It's one thing to see it in symbols and types. It's another thing to see it spelled out. So we are not surprised that one of the last messages of the book of Revelation is a message of the everlasting gospel. I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having that gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Everybody deserves to know who God really is, how much focus He's put into this little world, how, how much He desires to be able to save us. This is a message. The message is, fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. When this message is being proclaimed, judgment is already underway. Don't miss that point. God has a graduated investigation of what's been going on. Jesus has told us that when He comes, He's going to come with His reward. This is an announcement so that the world might know that eventually the door on the offer of redemption is going to close. Now can you imagine 
If God was in Christ reconciling the whole world, how many people does He want to save? We've already saw that He doesn't want anybody to perish. John 3.16 says that whosoever believes, for God so loved the world, the entire world. Nobody's on the hate list. Everybody's on the love list. Can you imagine what it must be for an omniscient, omnipotent God to have made full provision for the entire world and know they're not all taking advantage of it? But how must He feel when He realizes that lots of them don't even know about it? You see, that's where the church comes in. There's so much emphasis today on individuality. Oh, I'll go to church if I feel like it. Oh, I won't go to the meetings if I don't feel like it. You see, friends, the church is to be an army. We saw last night that it's the gift of prophecy that locks horns with the beast. There's a war going on. That trumpet gives a certain sound because it's a battle between light and darkness, good and evil, right and wrong. It's absolutely imperative that the church is rallied like a Marty army moves the church of God. Brothers, sisters, we're treading where the saints have trod. We're not divided. All one body we, one in faith and doctrine, one in charity. You see, friends, the church is the only one that's going to announce with trumpet-like tones the great invitation to come to a God who's made full provision, cleanse your record, open a relationship, and reinstate you as... Adam and Eve were before sin entered. It's absolutely important that you understand when we look at the book of Revelation that this word for angel really means messenger. God actually uses people to do this announcing. It's your job and my job. It's our job collectively. And even tonight, as we share this place and this time and this moment, we couldn't do what we're doing here if there wasn't a team effort making it work. God's end time message is a message of judgment. And everybody ought to know, they ought to be able to make a decision of whether or not God is someone they could love and someone they'd want to spend eternity with or not. So between these two books now, I'm going to show you the most amazing timeline in all of Scripture. The final judgment, Revelation gives the what. Daniel gives the when and the where. And Jesus gives us all assurance that He wants us to be there. My reward, Jesus said, is with me when He comes to give everyone according to His work. We saw that at the coming of Christ, the righteous dead are resurrected, the righteous living are translated. The wicked dead are slain by the brightness of His coming. Wicked living are slain by the brightness of His coming and the wicked dead remain in the ground. That means before Jesus comes, there's been an investigation into whether or not we're safe to save. There is a judgment that precedes the coming of Christ. It's a graduated judgment. The angels get to see if what God has done is fair. By the way, it was their home that was originally interrupted. It was their home in which re rebellion and civil war broke out. After We've been taken to heaven. We've been told in the Scripture that we're going to sit on thrones and we're going to judge with Christ. What are we going to be judging? Well, before the wicked are destroyed at the end of the millennium, we're going to be seeing that God is completely fair. And by the way, friends, I don't want to miss this point. I have dealt with people before that says, why, why, do, why does anybody need a thousand years? Perfect intelligence, God to explain, these kinds of things. Why do we always look at the judgment through the, the frame of only intelligence. When will we actually let the heart be a part of this thousand-year journey? It's way too much for somebody to think that the end is completely forever. When somebody we love dies, the Bible says, don't weep, don't cry, don't grieve like everybody else because you know there's a, there's a morning coming, there's a resurrection. But when that thousand years ends and the wicked surround the city and fire comes down and consumes the wicked, that's it. It's over. How do you get somebody ready for that? 
We've got to look at that thousand-year period through much more than just the mind. God is the author of love. It's not just a choice, although that's where it starts, but it's actually an emotion as well. When Jesus comes, His reward is with Him. That's because the angels have looked at the books, God has vindicated His people, and He's coming to get them, every question being answered. When the Son of Man comes with glory in His Father and with His angels, then He will reward each according to His works. Jesus says exactly the same thing. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. The books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. Friends, when you accepted Jesus, your name got written there. Can you say amen? amen? Listen, Jesus wrote your name in the book of life. He's not taking it out until you absolutely resist or rebel or tell the rest of the world you want it out. When you become a child and you're entered into the family of God, you don't, be qu- you don't quit. Your status doesn't change because you make mistakes. All of you that have children that have wandered off, they didn't quit becoming your children because they didn't do what you taught them when they were little boys and girls. Friends, I don't want anybody in this seminar to live in what I would call a stressed or neurotic state about their standing with God. God understands what children do. The one thing we don't want to do is is run exactly opposite of what God says. You know, there's a difference between children making mistakes and children holding their fist up to their parents, their father or their mother, and saying, I won't do what you say. Two completely different things. So many mistakes children make are just what children do. They're growing into maturity. Yes, they oftentimes choose what's best for them, take the biggest piece, inconsiderate, however you might want to say it. It's a journey of becoming a loving, mature adult. Christianity is no different. You're not in with God when you're good and out with your bad. He knows that you're a child, and He understands what that means. The one thing He doesn't want is the high-handed rebellion that marked the journey of Lucifer. I won't do what you want, God. Now, mind you, there's lots of a lackadaisical approach to relationships these days, both in marriage, in parenting, and with God. And God is the most intense lover there is. And He is looking for an undivided heart. You can't even create or give Him that, friends. One of my favorite prayers comes from a book called Christ Object Lessons. It says, Lord, take my heart. I can't give it. (laughs) It's your property. Keep it pure, for I can't keep it for you. It's such a beautiful prayer. Save me in spite of myself, my weak and Christ-like self. Mold me and fashion me and raise me up into a pure and holy atmosphere where the rich currents of your love can flow through my soul. Friends, when I pray that prayer, I've got hope. My heart doesn't always go after God. And I know it. But I can come back to God. But my name's written down in that book, friends. I'm not giving up. Jacob had 12 kids. Have you ever read the book of Genesis? Not one of them was very good. Even Joseph was kind of what we might call a spoiled, I hate to say, brat. But I think the other 11, or at least the other 10, were convinced he was. But I want to tell you something. Their names are on the gates of the city in the New Jerusalem. (laughs) That means that over the course of their life, their daddy's prayers were heard. And after he was dead, 
Some of them, even the worst. You know who the two worst were, don't you? Simeon and Levi. That's right, friends. The Levites became the preachers. They became the ministers to the whole nation of Israel. I want to tell you, God is a miracle-working God. I pray often. I say, Lord, You gave me my children. I gave them back to You. They gave themselves to You. They are not Satan's property. Save them. And I'm here to tell you today, God will not run over the will of anyone. But I serve an omnipotent God, and I know what was in the hearts and is in the hearts of different ones. I don't know all, but I know part of what was in the hearts of my, my children, and I know this. Every day the Holy Spirit is looking to parent them when I can't, when I'm not there. Friends, their names are written down in the book of life. God has permission to go in search of them. God has permission to come into their lives in ways that the others who have never made that choice have. Tonight, I'm inviting all of you. Give God permission to write your name down in the book of life. If you're in this auditorium tonight, or if you're watching me online, I'm inviting you tonight. Follow the simple steps of confessing that you have a need. You're a sinner. You're lost. Believe that God loves you. Confess your sins. Accept the fact that He's forgiven them. He's promised it's on His Word. And then plan on being with Him in eternity and let Him show you how to live for Him now while you're walking the planet. This is an amazing invitation. The dead were judged according to their works. Yes, there is a book of remembrance as well, friends. But that's where the blood of Jesus is blotting things out for me. How about for you? Things which were written in the books. Lucifer originally created quite a problem in heaven. He stood right next to God. He began doubting God and he sowed the seeds of doubt. He started a huge civil war. He questioned whether or not God was fair, God was loving, God was kind. The truth of the matter is God had nothing to hide. He was who He was wherever He was. And as an omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent God, that was everywhere. Lucifer himself came to the place where his view of God was so twisted that even though he stood in the presence of God, he didn't even know who God was anymore. And you can do that too, friends. The other night when I was talking about conspiracies, I I quoted from a woman by the name of Ellen White, when you look for evil, you become evil. The Bible says, love thinketh no evil, 1 Corinthians 13. When you look for good, you become good. And you know what? When you look for good, you actually help develop good in the one you're looking for. Reminds me of that story, the man that got on the train. He, was, he didn't know it, but he was about to sit down next to a preacher. He came on with his paper bag, and you could tell by how he was holding the bag, there was a bottle in it. People used to kind of hide these things just a little bit. He didn't know the man sitting next to him was a preacher. So he took a drink, cocked his head back, and took a big swig. A second later, he turned to the preacher and he said, you want a drink? The preacher said, no, I don't drink. I'm a minister. The man kind of hung his head in silence, and then he turned to him and he said, I bet you think I'm an evil man. He said, no, I just thought you were a generous one. I want you to think about how you're looking at people, friends. This is how Jesus saw people. This is how Jesus' people see people. And if you don't see like that, friends, I'm inviting you to invite the Holy Spirit in to show you the good when sometimes what is most evident and most present is evil. 
The major theme of the book of Revelation is a conflict between Christ and Satan. Guess what? If Jesus wins, you win. If Satan wins, you lose. The prize is you. Paul said that we're the temple of God. God wants to live in our mind. God wants to shape our heart. God wants the world to see the distinct, did you hear that word? Distinct difference between sons of light and sons of darkness. That distinction has been fading in in this Christian nation and people are in grave relational, physical, and spiritual disease and distress because of it. You see, friends, let Jesus in. Live a simple, beautiful, distinct life. No, you don't lie. No, you don't laugh at those bad jokes. No, you don't listen to that music. No, you don't just eat willy-nilly. No, you don't talk about people. Yes, you're generous. Yes, you're kind. Yes, you're truthful. All of those things. The difference between light and darkness is not hard to distinguish. This judgment is important. Everything that can be done, God is doing to save. And everything that can be done to destroy, Satan's doing it too. You almost feel like he's pulled out all the stops. But friends, that's why the church has got to pull out all the stops and give a witness to Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. That's who we are. Where does the judgment take place? Daniel tells us, I watched till thrones were put in place and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow and the hair of his head was like pure wool. Friends, this is the same basic description of Jesus in the first chapters of Revelation. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A thousand thousands ministered to him, and ten thousand times ten thousands stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were open. Now listen, I showed you in the introductory parts of this seminar uh, uh, the first of all of the prophecies of Daniel. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and a divided kingdom and a stone cut out without hands. That is one of the most simplest portrayals of the future there is. But every time you come on a prophecy in the book of Daniel, you get more focus on the time of the end. We call this outline prophecy. So you get the basic strokes in Daniel chapter 2. And by the time you're progressing into Daniel chapter 7, we have beasts representing the progression of kingdoms. And we see more detail on the time of the end. Should we be surprised, knowing the progression of the festivals and knowing the progression of the sanctuary, that this would happen? God sealed the book of Daniel until the time of the end, but the book of Revelation, He pronounced a blessing on for those who read it. We are reading about the courtroom setting that the angels are proclaiming as the hour of judgment. These books go together, and it's an amazing thing. When does the judgment take place? Well, the judgment is before Christ comes, at least part of it. And this verse right here, I'm not, gonna, I'm not going through all of Daniel 7 and 8 tonight, but I'm going to bring you down to a verse that now makes sense to you. For 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Friends, where are we at? In the courtyard, the holy place, or the most holy place? That final action of Jesus in the most holy place is when they cleanse, when he cleansed the sanctuary. That high priest in there, taking the blood of one of the goats and touching there near the mercy seat, this is a moment in which this high priest representing Jesus is taking all the, uh, the ceremonially accumulated sins. Jesus is represented by that high priest. He's been cleansing it. 
Now he's in the most holy place. He's going to carry those sins out in his person and he's going to confront the one who caused the sin problem. The atonement is done by the time Jesus does this. His blood has made the atonement. But 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Now tomorrow night, I'm going to do what I said I would do tonight. I told you that, tomorrow, that tonight I would show you what was the world's biggest tent back in the middle 1800s. William Miller had studied this prophecy. He came down to this moment. He had made so many strides in understanding Scripture as he compared Scripture with Scripture. But he came down to this prophecy. He had already studied about this. He saw the outline developing. And he read this and he thought the earth was the sanctuary and he knew when Christ came there was going to be a cleansing. The sanctuary doctrine, the understanding... How, you have to remember, the Bible had not been in the hands of the ordinary person very long. Theologians had basically told the masses, you can't understand Scripture. The Protestant Reformation started to break the shackles off the freedom of man to read the Word. But Bibles were expensive. This is the early 1800s. You can buy a Bible today for $5. That wasn't the case almost 180 years ago. Men and women had not the freedom to pour over the Scriptures and they had not really thought about what Paul meant when he talked about Jesus having entered into a sanctuary not made with hands. That was the model or the pattern for the one on earth. These are some very simple and clear Scriptures. And so when, when uh, William Miller read this verse, he thought, this means Jesus is coming. He started doing the math, and he announced that Jesus would be here in 1844. He got the attention of the world along with Josiah Litch, a preacher in Europe. They were on the newspapers. I want to tell you, people were... For as, as populated as our nation was, it would have been hard for somebody not to know about the Millerite movement and the prediction that the world was coming to an end. The Spirit of God was in this movement. People's lives were changed. They were convicted. It just turned out that the cleansing of the sanctuary was not Christ's coming. But William Miller had not yet seen this progression as Jesus as, media, Jesus as sacrifice, Jesus as mediator, and Jesus as vindicator in a threefold ministry in the heavenly sanctuary. And so there was great power attending this. As a matter of fact, uh, the Scriptures say that the heavens would be shaken, and certainly for that day and age, the celestial phenomena was amazing. The stars falling from the sky, the great dark day, and the great Lisbon earthquake of 1755. The world's attention was there. These were unusual phenomena. The only problem was on October 22, 1844. Why do you think that date was in October, friends? Miller was on to something. He at least knew that the Old Testament storyline of the cleansing of the sanctuary was a fall event. Now this year, the Day of Atonement isn't falling on October 22. It's falling on October 9 or 10. But 160, 170, 180 years ago, it was going to fall on October 22, 1844. And they gathered all around the East Coast anticipating Jesus coming, but He didn't come. They were the laughingstock of the world but the next morning, there was a man who had spent the night in prayer. And as he went to see some of the believers, people who had believed in the prophetic journey, they had sensed the inner witness in this journey. Their hearts were on fire. As he made his way to see some friends, a thought came to him. 
Christ did not come on earth. What He did was He moved into the ministry of the final judgment, the vindication of His own people. And now the doctrine of the sanctuary was out on the table for for people to look at in a different way. It was a disappointment, but it led to a greater understanding. 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Understand, Son of Man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. So what does this mean? Well, we've been talking about this. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. We've been over all of this. Jesus is the Lamb. Jesus is the priest. And Jesus is our vindicating judge. But one thing I do want you to know before we move on is that once this doctrine was understood, there were many who decided that they couldn't endure the derision and the embarrassment. They weren't really engaged for the right reason. And they left the message and the movement behind. Now, friends, could we get one thing perfectly clear? Spiritual misunderstanding on a part of a prophecy does not mean there's nothing of substance in the prophetic workup to the disappointment. How many prophecies did I say there are that predicted the coming of Christ? Over 300. They're all examined in this book. But I want to ask you a question. Were the Pharisees disappointed and confused and wrong? How about the disciples and the apostles? Was there anybody that really had it right? They were looking. Simeon and Anna, when Jesus were born, were in the temple. And when Jesus as a baby was brought in, the Holy Spirit said, this is the one. And Simeon took him up in his arms and said, now that I've held him in his arms, I can die. For I've seen the consolation of Israel. Oh, people knew The shepherds brought their storyline, but I'll tell you what, they were confused about some of the elemental components of the prophecies. Did that mean that the prophetic workup was wrong? Did that mean that the shepherds were wrong in their witness? Did that mean that the wise men who came to Jerusalem were wrong? Even Peter, James, and John were looking for a king, somebody to sit on a throne. But does that mean every part of what they were anticipating and prophetically knew was near was wrong? No. And in 1844, when the Millerite movement went through this great disappointment, they had made a colossal mistake in attributing the cleansing of the sanctuary to the coming of Christ. But they came out on the other side understanding that there was another step yet before God's name could be cleared and we could be taken home. He said unto me, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. The Day of Atonement was an illustration of God's judgment in the heavenly sanctuary that will occur just before Jesus comes. Gabriel was sent to Daniel to help him understand the vision between Daniel 8 and 9. Daniel doesn't get an interpretation, but he's praying. Gabriel took the place of Lucifer. He's the one in the very presence of God. Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. We shouldn't be surprised. Daniel chapter 12 tells us this. Now, when we come to prophetic literature, we find a few examples that help us understand what this day means. Because 2,300 days is like six and a half years. But the vision cannot be about the time of the end and only be good for six and a half years. Are you following my logic? Gabriel has made it clear to Daniel, this vision is about the time of the end. So what I'm about to explain to you is exactly what we're dealing with. When Ezekiel, another prophet, had to prophesy against Israel, and I hate to say that, but against Israel, he was told to lay on his side. 
After he laid on his side for a number of days, God said, I've appointed a day for a year. How many of you remember when the spies went out to examine the promised land? How many days were they out there? Forty. When they came back, ten gave a bad report, two gave a good report. The nation decided to not act in faith, even though the Red Sea had been opened up and water had flowed out of rocks. All of a sudden, the God that got them out of Egypt couldn't get them into the promised land. And when they complained and lamented bitterly, it was a wicked unbelief. God said, okay, you want to go back? Well, you're not going back, but I'm going to let you wander in the wilderness. How long? A day. Representing a year. Those spies were out 40 days. They wandered for 40 years. When we're dealing with God and His prophetic pronouncements for the future, when we're looking at a a text like this one, those 2,300 days in prophetic literature... In prophetic literature, not historical literature, this is pointing to the future, they equal a year. So 23 prophetic days equals 2,300 literal years. We need to find the start point and the end point. Now I'm going to tell you, I'm going to focus for the last few minutes here on this amazing prophecy. It's going to nail down the coming of Christ and it's going to nail down the final phase. We shouldn't be surprised that these two things, the spring festivals represented by His coming and opening the relationship, and the fall festivals representing Jesus getting us ready and making the way for us to come home. Let's look at the first one. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. Now this is an interesting phrase. Seventy weeks is actually a phrase that can be very naturally interpreted as 70 weeks are determined or cut off for your people. Daniel has this long time prophecy and God's going to show him two amazing things. The first thing he's going to show Daniel is how God is going to try to reach his own, reach his people who are to reach the world. So 70 weeks are going to be specifically focused on redeeming Israel. 70 prophetic weeks If you have 70 weeks and they all have 7 days, that leads you to 490 prophetic days or 490 years. Now, how do you know the prophecy is any good? Well, you've got to have a starting point. And the interesting thing is that the Bible is going to give us a starting point. 490 years are determined for the Jewish people. When does it start? The Bible is very clear. Understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and to build Jerusalem, which would have been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, you're going to have a certain period of time. That time is going to be seven weeks and 62 weeks. That gets us up, mathematicians, to how many weeks? 69 weeks. So all of the prophecy is going to be covered, except one week, right in the very beginning, 483 years. It's all going to be about one thing. From the date to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah comes, the prince is going to be 69 prophetic weeks, which is 483 days, 483 years. So the first part of this prophecy, the first 490 days or years, is going to be for the Jewish people especially. The last 1,810 years are going to be for the Gentiles. Now I want to hit the pause button right here. When you look at this, this is really quite an amazing thing that people gloss over. What we have here is a storyline that shows us that God spent just about the same amount of time trying to reach the world with the Jewish people as He spent trying to reach the world with the Christian church. From the days of Abraham up until the days of Christ are about the same amount of years as from the special time that's set aside 
for the church filled with the Holy Spirit to go forward. So these 1,810 years aren't that much different in time than the almost 2,000 years that God spent prior to this working especially with the Jewish people. Now, until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. There's our 69 weeks again. Messiah means anointed one. And the interesting thing is this prophecy predicts with exactness the day in which Christ would inaugurate his, his Messiah ministry. On the day he was baptized, the Holy Spirit was poured out on him. The dove was above him. God said, this is my beloved son and whom I'm well pleased. This prophecy pinpoints with clarity. If you were a Jewish person and you kept track of, of how your city was destroyed and how it was rebuilt and the coming of the Messiah, everyone that had been studying was somewhat aware that they were near the time when the Messiah would appear. How do you think the wise men showed up in Jerusalem at the time of his birth? They had been studying these oracles. They had gotten their hands on some of these truths. And they were anticipating that the time was near. That star that appeared in the sky intrigued them. They were impressed to follow it. They were a little bit ahead of when Christ would announce himself as the Messiah of the world. But they were prompted by the Spirit and they knew the general time. So in AD 27, Jesus is baptized. This is not a very difficult date to anchor down. We know the Holy Spirit came down on Jesus and we know Luke tells us the exact time, 15th year of the reign of Tiberius. Secular records confirm that this is A.D. 27. We shouldn't be surprised. Christ is in charge. He's showing up to save us. The prophecies have said it and now He's here. And after the 62 weeks, the Messiah shall be cut off. Now here's where the prophecy gets even more precise. He shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. Now, it's one thing to know that 483 days or years from the start of this prophecy, Jesus will show up, the Messiah. But this last week is when His ministry is completely active. He lived as a normal person for 30 years. He was the God-man then, but He transitioned into an announcement and a special role as God's appointed sacrifice as God Himself as Savior of the world. When he was baptized, his ministry was underway. It was a ministry to try to confirm the covenant with Abraham and his children. He was going to try to make sure they would receive him as their own and take the message to the world. But it didn't work. It didn't work. There's one week, seven days or seven years, prophetically speaking. He'll confirm that covenant for many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and suffering. And isn't this what happened? Jesus had a ministry of three and a half years. He was rejected by his own. In the middle of that prophetic week, he was cut off from his own people. Or I should say they were cut off from him. Not that they can't receive salvation individually, but in the middle of that week, they rejected their Messiah. He did not give up on them. But he did bring an end to the sacrificing, at least the needful sacrificing of lambs and goats and rams. Now, yes, those who rejected Christ kept sacrificing those things. But the Christians understood Jesus had fulfilled what the symbol represented. And those sacrifices no longer meant anything to them. We have the cross in the middle of this last week. And then we have an interesting thing. Jesus leaves the final three and a half years of ministry to his disciples and his apostles. 
When you look at his experience in the upper room, he talks about the covenant. He says that the wine, the unfermented wine, nothing about Jesus was corrupted. That could not have been alcoholic wine. This was the pure, unsullied, unspoiled fruit of the grape. It represents the pure life of Jesus. And he gave in place of the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, he gave this emblem of the fruit of the vine. And he gave this unleavened bread to represent the, the provision he could make for us in all ways, especially spiritually. But it was a new experience of the Passover, which the Christian church still celebrates. Crucified on time, ministering on time. The Bible makes this clear. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. The time is fulfilled, Jesus said. These weren't willy-nilly phrases thrown out there. This was a divine clock ticking away with the solution, which was our dear Savior arriving right on time. Paul says in due time, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. Christ was baptized on time. He was crucified on time. And he asked his apostles, minister here in Jerusalem, then minister beyond. But they weren't to go beyond until they attempted to confirm the covenant. So what happens in the end? There's a man by the name of Stephen. Three and a half years have gone by since Jesus was crucified. Stephen is called into court. It is before the Sanhedrin. He begins a sermon. In that sermon, the trumpet gives a certain sound. The prophetic gift is operative. He's there to teach. He takes them back over the experience of the patriarchs. But there comes a point in time when he announces the rejection of the Messiah and the voice is ringing true and the prophetic voice has that certain sound and these men determined right there, right then, that they will take the life of Stephen. And so he was stoned. He was brought to an end of his prophetic gift simply for announcing that Jesus was indeed the appointed and the anointed and the crucified Savior. And from that moment forward, the covenant, the special relationship, the familial bonds between Jesus and the Jewish race were severed. It was, as you might say, the great divorce. In A.D. 34... The end of the 49-year, 490-year prophecy is completed. The Jewish nation rejects Jesus as a Messiah, rejecting the message announced by Stephen. And then the gospel goes to the world. So what's left, friends? These 70 weeks were determined for the Hebrew people. But there's still 1,810 years left. Then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. For 2,300 years, evenings and mornings, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. That first part was for the Jews, but that second part was for the rest of the world. As a matter of fact, Jesus would announce the day and the hour that his ministry would move from simply mediation into the final act of vindication for those who have put their lives in his hands. That brings us up to 1844. 2,300 evenings and mornings, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Jesus moves into the final phase of judgment. And that judgment is to be on behalf of the saints. And yet those who have not hidden their life in Christ might find themselves 
appropriately unsettled at the knowledge that for the last 170 years, this judgment has been going on. How much longer will it go? I don't know. But I do know this. As Peter says, the hour is closer than when we first believed. Since 1844, we've been living in God's judgment hour. His desire is to vindicate His people. But these angels are echoing exactly what Daniel predicted. The hour of His judgment, notice what it says, has come. This, this movement actually began before anyone knew how to announce it. William Miller was wrong. It wasn't the coming of Christ. And that judgment started and it wasn't even understood. And by the time it's understood, it's underway. Don't miss the verbiage. Friends, tonight, we don't have to be afraid of this judgment. It's not against us if our lives are hid in Christ, if we're living a surrendered life. This was a judgment that was to prepare us to go home. And yet, it seems like we've gotten a little bit comfortable here. God's calling us to remember that this amazing journey of sacrifice, uh, relationship restoration or mediation, and then vindication, the world needs to know what the real storyline is. Especially when you compare it against much of what the Christian church is that teaches that if you don't follow God, you're going to burn in hell forever and ever. I mean, this message must get out that the Bible is absolutely accurate. It's not just one over 84 with a hundred zeros. It's not just dipping into the ocean expecting to get that one drop you wanted to get. This is an amazing confirmation of God's omniscience and knowledge of the future, His all-knowingness. And I want to tell you something. What it shows is that God was prepared before the foundation of the earth to save us. Nothing's happening by accident. God is looking to redeem us. There is a place waiting for us. He has planned for the Messiah to come. He has planned for a transition of ministry on Jesus' behalf. And He's planned for you and me to be there. And tonight, friends, I want to extend the invitation one more time. We are living in the symbolic, actually we're past the symbolic, we're living in the actual day of judgment. And in the same way that the Feast of Trumpets began yesterday, and there was a call to look at your life, doesn't Peter echo this call? Doesn't he say, be sober, be vigilant? For your adversary, the devil goes about like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Listen, friends, this amazing blaze of economic opportunity that's upon the the Western world right now, especially America, it's a huge distraction. It's a sideshow. The devil's looking to suck us in. He's looking to seduce us into some selfish, pleasure-seeking sideshow. Because he knows he's got to pull out the stops. I'm going to go just a little bit farther. When they were right on the verge of the promised land and Balaam couldn't curse them, what did he do? He sent in the Moabite women, Baal Peor. And what he couldn't do by cursing, he did by immorality. I want you to know, in the last 20 years, with the access of click away to immoral content, the devil has done the same thing. He's out to destroy the souls of men and women. We are on the verge of the promised land. He knows it. He's pulled out the stops. But God has not left us without evidence and appeal and invitation to live our lives in a way that says, you know what? That stuff there is soul-destroying, it's destructive, and it's distractive. I'm planning to go home. 
I'm going to live a simple life. I'm going to limit my exposure to the wickedness of this world. I know that this is a solemn day for planet Earth. And by the way, friends, it's not solemn if you know how the judgment's going to turn out for you. Amen? Your life's hidden Christ. But what about the rest? This is tonight, friends, where I want my appeal to be. If you've not received Christ as your advocate, as your lamb, as your mediator, and as your judge, I'm appealing to you tonight to receive Him. But for all of you who have, I'm appealing to you tonight to rededicate your life so that others could know. Our churches be strong. The trumpet give a certain sound. Our time, our money, our talent could all be focused on making sure the trumpets that precede the judgment are loud and clear. And the invitation to the festivities that will follow the judgment is given to all. Tonight, friends, that's my invitation. Jesus came on time. His final acts of vindication have begun. Unfortunately for some, it will not be vindication. But it could be, and it should be. And tonight I'm inviting you to let it be for yourself and to make a determined decision to make sure your life is given away for a world who doesn't know. So tonight, friends, we've looked at the most amazing time prophecy in all the Bible. Did you get it all tonight? No? I'll go over it a little bit more tomorrow night, and I'm going to show you some amazing things tomorrow night. Let's pray. Lord, we're pressing on. The trumpets blew for nine nights, nine mornings, nine evenings before the Day of Atonement. It just so happens to be, Lord, that's where we are in this seminar. I'm praying, Lord, give us strength for the last three nights. What might you do to change how we're living? What might you do to change our focus? What might you do to expand our understanding? I don't know, Lord, but I'm praying, revive this church revive the hearts of the people in this room and those that are watching on the internet. I'm praying, Lord, may they know there is a God who sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and His desire is to change our lives and bring us home. Thank You for what You've done to bless us, Lord. May it not be weaponized against us to love this world, but may we weaponize it to warn and invite and win this world. Guide us now and bless us in our fellowship. Bring us back again tomorrow night and help us to press on in this journey of Jesus on prophecy. In, my, in your son's name I'm praying, Lord. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www dot audioverse dot org